UX Podcast is funded by me and Per, together with contributions we get from you, our listeners. Help support UX Podcast and the UX community by contributing financially to keep the show running. Visit uxpodcast.com slash support and contribute as much as you can. UX Podcast episode 243. I'm Pat Axbom. And I'm James Roy Lawson. And this is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening in 194 countries all over the world, from Palestine to Denmark. From time to time, we bring you a repeat show. This is an episode from our extensive back catalogue, resurfacing some of the ideas and thoughts from the past that we believe are still relevant and well worth revisiting. Caroline Jarrett, welcome to the show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Where are you located at right now? I'm in a little town called Leighton Buzzard, uh, which is just like the bird, B-U-Z-Z-A-R-D. You've got to love British place names. They're, they're abs- driving around it the UK, fun. driving around the UK, it's fantastic just looking at all the signs. It's, I mean, there's some great Swedish ones as well, to be honest, but you've got to understand Swedish to get the, be- the most benefit from them. But the pronunciation isn't always obvious either. Well, as as you probably know, I'm a I'm a form specialist, and whenever I encounter a U.S. website that insists I put on a state, a U.S. state, I always choose Arkansas because <laughs> it seems to me that a town called Buzzard would be in Arkansas. Um, of course, <laughs> and, and Arkansas lovely, yeah. is at the top of the alphabet as well. Uh, and the UK post office really doesn't seem to mind mm. if the address has a random AR for Arkansas mm. in it. No. Um, and then no. I complain about that to my American friends and they point out no. that British sites are just as pedantic about forcing them to put in UK postcodes. Post so yeah. um, <laughs> it's a, a, a classic internationalization problem. You're it right, is, it's, isn't it? It's exactly the same thing with Swedish sites that go international and yeah, the whole way postcodes are split up. It's, um... I always choose Michigan because I have friends there. Exactly. Uh, well, so we all have our little techniques and patterns that we follow when we're doing this um, this kind of stuff. Right. But that is a perfect segue into why we are having you on the show, Caroline, is because you are a forms and survey specialist and you've been working with forms. I don't know. It's, I found somewhere it said for 15 years or something. No, you're no, written, 20, you're, 20. 20. 20 years. More wow. than 20. I started my, I just yeah. had the 20th birthday of Effort Mark Limited um, oh, last wow. month. Yeah. And I, and I'd been specializing in forms for beyond before that before I actually started the business so more mm. than 20 years of being completely overexcited and interested in forms oh. yeah so your, so your background is is you've even then been working with um, or you work with non-digital forms as well then oh sure yeah I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I date back you know when I started mm. dinosaurs roamed the earth and we didn't have any internet mm. um, so uh, to be honest I actually started in computer systems. So uh, before I got into um, what we called human-computer interaction in those days, it keeps changing its name. I keep doing the same stuff, but it keeps changing name. Um, I was a project manager, software engineer, and a project manager in computer systems. So um, a lot of my work, the the reason I got into forms was that I was a project manager delivering optical character recognition systems to the 
inland revenue as it was called at that time yeah um and the, 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 tax, the tax authority yeah. the tax authorities yes mm. um they wanted to scan tax forms um obviously to save typing and um the sad part was that the systems really didn't work at all well and mm. i got permission to go and find out what was actually happening in the various tax offices um, and I discovered that the forms were filled in extremely badly. So there was no way that my computer system was ever going to deal with a form where someone had written, please read attached letter. Mm -hmm. yeah. It just wasn't going to happen. So I then became really interested in, well, how do we design the forms so that they're filled in accurately? Because then my computer system would work. And I mm -hmm. just became completely interested in how do you make, Forms easy to fill in, and there you go. As I say, it's a fascination that shows no signs of wearing off. Yeah. That's fantastic. No, it's, it's, it's when you when you mentioned one of my first um, oh, jobs that I did um, uh, in that bit after university um, was was data entry for for British mm. Gas. When mm -hmm. they used to, you know, they used to come with these piles of um, well completed work orders, I guess, and when the when the engineers had been out and done things for people's gas meters and so on, and that was just the things you got back on these pieces of paper was just crazy, and you sat there having to you had to fill them all into the system, so straight away you see that that problem of humans, paper, data entry. And these days, I still completely recommend work observation to people. Mm. You know, mm. go and go and watch people actually deal with the stuff. And you'll learn an enormous amount. And you, and in particular, I love a post room. I love going to visit the post mm. room and will indeed get up at 5 a.m. because a lot of large organisations like to open their post at times like 6 a.m. so that all the workers have the piles of post ready mm. and waiting for them. And you meet interesting, nice people in the post room and you learn an awful lot about how forms actually arrive and what they really look like. Um Again, there's a great story. You know, back in the day, the revenue was thinking about using scanning for all their post mm. and uh, went to the post room. And, and that was amazing things turned up in the post. Um, for example, a box of uniforms um, arrived. I was like, how are you going to scan the uniforms exactly? You know, so the rule was that if a uniform had to be inspected by a tax officer to assess whether it was purely a uniform and therefore could not be used as normal clothing because if you could wear the uniform as everyday clothing then it was a taxable benefit oh <laughs> you know just great yeah, yeah. Great yeah fantastic yeah but you know so uh, paper computer systems and then the internet came along and web forms and that was really cool because you could get people to type stuff in on their computer rather than having mm people type it in for them and so much more efficient and wonderful and so many new and interesting exciting ways for people to mess up their forms which they oh, yeah. carry on doing yeah to this yeah. and of, of course best case scenario i mean you can always if you find that the form isn't working you can change it much faster than if you have a thousand copies of it absolutely mm -hmm. and you can also make an awful lot of people really upset because there's <laughs> no way that they can write on the edge of the form yeah. I don't know what button to click. Mm. Uh, just today, you know, today I tweeted an example where um, I, I happened to have a small problem with my foot and I went to see the podiatrist, as they call the foot doctor, and he said, well, you need these special type of insoles. And he gave me a pair and they're great. 
and he said order some spares so I went onto a website to order some spares and it gave me two buttons to click neither of which applied to me uh, what did I do you know uh, <laughs> I need to buy the stuff yeah. I need to get them from the manufacturer mm-hmm. the choice was are you a private practitioner or another type of practitioner and there was no button or anything to do if you were just a normal person <laughs> mm. and I was stuck so you know I suppose you could stretch it to other yeah yeah there was there was nothing and I rang rang them up and they said oh yes we have a completely different website for the general public and I just thought well it would save you a lot of time and trouble if you had put that information on the contact us page or indeed on the registration page that's something that happened and I I remember I um, I think it was last year I ordered some I think it was some timers so children's timers these kind of big colourful timers you have at schools kind of say you've got five minutes left and then turn it over Um, and and the website I bought them from um, it was really hard work ordering and I kind of thought this just feels really odd and wrong and then it took absolute age for the things to come I think it took Mm. like four or five weeks and I kept ringing up and I kept getting you know real nice people apologising to me and saying, well, I'm really sorry it's taking so long. I mean, they've, they've just missed your order again. Something's not right. So eventually I got to speak to the, the director of this company and he explained to me that basically I was pretty much the first public, you know, private person who'd ordered anything from their company website. Private, previously they'd been education only, oh. only selling to schools. Ah. And <laughs> and what, as it turned out was that they're their um, their um, uh, stock room guys and the and the system, how the system was built, just wasn't at all prepared for this other channel in that people could mm. private people could order it. So they were prioritising these bulk orders for all the schools and leaving all the private individuals with kind of only wanting one or two in a pile and just mm. kind of oh we'll do that when the next mm. lot of orders go, next lot of um, supply comes in. Mm. So like, it was just never getting fulfilled. But there's nothing, none of this was apparent to me as a. I just looked like a normal website with a few quirks. Mm. Because, but I, you can tell these kind of things when you when you work in the business. You you feel the force says this isn't going to work well. Mm. <laughs> but you do it but anyway. It, it's such a great story because it just goes to show that some of the old-fashioned techniques that I used in the 1980s of going and observing people working are mm. still important. You know, even though we think it's all internet, in the end, an awful lot of this is is actually comes down to people in a warehouse or, yeah. you know. Going and watching them work can tell mm. you an e- enormous amount. We, we, we often need to get out of our offices and meet mm. the people who are doing the real work. Yeah. And then that can make life so much more efficient. And these days, of course, I mean, I've been doing that forever, but these days it tends to be called something like journey mapping or touch point analysis right. or mm. pain points. or you know, People keep changing the terms, mm. but it's still just down to basic common sense watching people work and having a think yeah. about it it is isn't it i love that what you said before that i keep doing the same stuff but it it's just changes yeah. its name and it is really really true didn't it used to be called mm-hmm. was it time and motion mm-hmm. studies exactly it, back in it did. many decades mm-hmm. ago yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> i actually gave a talk on that recently recently yeah. or I, I used that example yeah, yeah. motion study yeah. Uh, with uh, taylor and uh, the the gilbreths that you know the the book and the film uh, uh, the where the, they have a dozen children. That's actually based on the couple that uh, started uh, time studies in, in back in the Taylor days. And uh, he had an example where he was observing bricklayers and the bricklayers were bending down each time to grab a brick and put it on put it on the wall. And he invented something that, well, uh, something that would hold the bricks for him that he didn't have to bend down. And they mm. saved like 80% of time based on the motion studies and what he came up with. 
Mm. And just observing patients in a room uh, or, or uh, during an operation, observing a doctor during an operation, they, they were the couple that actually uh, determined that, oh my God, this doctor needs to ask for the instruments from a nurse so that it, has, it doesn't have to walk back and forth to the table and get those instruments. Mm. And those, so the, those people, based on those observations, are the reason that why operations are performed in that way today. That is pretty cool, actually. It is. It is. It's great. We, do, we all do nothing mm. but mm. optimize. We're just constantly optimizing mm. everything we do. Mm. We call it design, also, don't we? Well, but we're optimizing. Mm. Well, there's that. And mm. that's us as designers, I guess. But what happens is that the people, people tend to satisfy rather than optimize. You know, mm. that they'll do what they can to get through the day. So the, the, the person that was observed picking up the book... That was a satisficing. That wasn't. It was because that person needed to get that job done, yeah. and was just muddling through. And we see that behaviour all the time of people simply muddling through situations, and mm. then they get used to it. Mm. So this is another reason why we have to do the observation, because they forget. They just do the work that they do. They don't have to recall it or think about it or do anything other than do their jobs. Mm. Um, so going and observing them. But it's interesting that we're talking about some of the historic research because one of the things that's absolutely fascinating me about the field of surveys is that it's a field with a tremendously long literature. So one of the most cited and actually most interesting papers in the world of survey methodology is the famous Rensis-Lickert paper from 1932 Okay. which is the one that talks about what's now known as Likert, Likert scales or Likert response formats, and there's an interestingly fine distinction between those two. Oh, I've always pronounced that Likert. Now I hear what you're saying, yes. <laughs> I, believe that, I believe that Mr. Likert called it Likert, but okay. I shall just have to double check. <laughs> you're, you're probably yeah. right. I, just, I, I probably just read it all everywhere and I just pronounced it Likert scale. Right. <laughs> one, um, one of the problems we have yeah. been been non well speaking lots and lots of English in Sweden, but yeah. not always having English speaking input. We sometimes yeah. just make them up. Well, uh, and who can say how a name is pronounced in English <laughs> yes. until you ask the person exactly. themselves? You have no chance, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that just goes to show, you know, there's been uh, surveys going for a long time, and I got mm. into the whole world of surveys because I was looking for what research had been done in forms. And discovered that consistently people really haven't researched forms. They've just assumed, I don't know why they don't research them, but they don't. But the survey methodologists have done enormous amounts of research and um, continue to do so. So practically every country, I mean, the 190 odd different national statistical institutes listed on the United Nations website, for example. Mm. Virtually every country in the world has a central statistical authority. <clears throat> Majority of official statistics arise from surveys. So this survey methodology going on at a national, international level has been for decades, centuries even. Mm. Um, enormous amount of interesting literature, all of which is, a lot of which is about how do people answer questions, how they think about questions, how to get better answers to questions. So all of that's very interesting for forms. And that's kind of how I got into surveys, sort of by accident, really, because that was where I could find um, insights for my forms work. But recently I've become more and more interested in surveys too, and that's what I'm mostly um, 
doing in workshops uh, at the moment is survey um, workshops. Um, just come back from doing one at UXLX. Um, the mm. slides are on my SlideShare account. And I'm just preparing one for the User Experience Professionals Conference, which is uh, in a, in less than a month now in London. Right. So that that's uh, you, you were you're at UXLX, which is the first year in many years that we haven't been there. Uh, so you have to tell us how that experience was as well, uh, going there and giving that talk and how how people appreciated your the talk that you gave in the workshop. Uh, it's a great conference, you yeah. know. It, it, you, if you've been, you know it's it's the most international conference that I've been to. Um, I was lucky enough to go and do a talk on forms at the first one in two thousand and ten. Ah, right. Um, ah. So it was a real pleasure to be invited mm. back to do mm. something on surveys at the most recent mm. one. Um, had about I guess twenty five people mm. um, in my workshop and probably representing at least a dozen countries. Oh, excellent. Um, which was great. Um, and we we had a good productive time, I think. So we were doing a bit of a deep dive into questions, mm. um, looking, first of all, at the four-step model for answering questions. And then we had a good look at uh, asking about satisfaction and the... Mm. Um, the sat post-task satisfaction questionnaires. I've got I've got the presentation in front of me now, so I'm going to cheat and read them. <laughs> um, read and understand, find the answer, judge the answer, and place the answer. Correct. Yeah. I've done, you uh, want I, me I to was, elaborate? I would, no, absolutely, because I I I, I, I think I would have come to the workshop if I'd been there, because I think this is um, I mean it's a fascinating subject because we're we're con as well when we're doing UX research. We're we're constantly asking questions. We're constantly placing questions, or mm. or we're asking for, like you said, the the post task or um, post um, test um, questionnaires, you know, system usability skills or whatever it is. We're constantly throwing questions at people with scales here and there and mm. um, net promoter scores. And um, when you start digging into it, there's so many little things, so many so many details. Just like everything else we do, it's it's all about the detail and understanding yeah. what you're doing. So it is actually easy for us to understand how you can get passionate about forms. Although mm. when I have given uh, talks about specific web forms and I try to pitch it to my client, it, the first thing that comes out of the mouth is that that sounds really, really boring. <laughs> uh, and, and forms tend to have an effect on people. It, that, well, uh, just forms, that's boring. If we get back to the four steps that you, were, the, that you just read up, read there, uh, James, is that read and understand and find an answer. The one that really caught my mind, my eye when I was looking at the presentation was judge the answer because I couldn't, I wouldn't have picked that out uh, just thinking about it. So guide us through with those steps, Caroline, and what do they really mean? <laughs> well, I, I, I think, you know, read and understand mm. is, is pretty obvious. If you can't yeah. read the question, if it's illegible, you can't understand it. If you can't understand it, you can't try and answer it. So finding an answer, some questions we do have answers just in our heads, you know. So you just asked me a question and I know this stuff pretty well. So I have the answer directly in my head. Mm. Um, if you wanted to find an explanation, you would possibly have to go and read something or look it up or or hunt for it. So um, I, one of the classic examples I give on finding an answer is when you pay for something using a credit card. Now, some people are very good with numbers and have memorized the long number on their credit card. Mm. I'm very bad with numbers and I have to read the number off the card. I have to have the physical card in front of me and I have to copy it digit by digit. 
So I have to find an answer. I have to look at something else to have an answer to that. Judging the answer is something that we generally are fairly happy to reveal answers to people. But if you think about privacy, that a lot of us, um, I don't want to shock you, but many people actually have a completely full set of information that they use on the Internet. I know, I know you can't credit it, can you? Mm. Obviously, majority of people always give exactly their precise, correct and accurate personal details on all occasions. But there is this behaviour which I've heard of where people may not always wish to reveal that to everybody. And that's where they're judging the answer. They're deciding, is this an answer I actually want to tell someone? On some websites I've seen which have been thoughtfully designed Against email address, they may have a link to click to say, how will you use your email address? Um, which for people who are sensitive about privacy might be the difference between revealing their actual email address or making one up. Um, yeah. So mm. that's the judging part. Mm. Do people actually want to give you this answer and are they willing to give you the correct information? Um, and then the placing the answer thing is exactly that problem I was just talking about where I had an answer for that website, which is to say I want to purchase as a private individual, but the only options they gave me was which type of doctor are you? Mm. There, there was no place for me to tell them I'm not a doctor, I'm just an individual person. So it's extremely common for there to be fewer choices in the mind of an organisation than there are in real life. So would an, another example maybe would be um, male, female or none of your business. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and indeed the Australian government has now has official Australian government policy is male, female or other. So yeah. some people are quite happy to tell you what their gender is, but it's neither male nor female. Um, yeah. Of course, and some yeah. pe people can be offended by just having the other box to check because there are, well, I think Facebook has 23 different genders uh, that you can select. Excellent, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right. You're you're in the middle of a sex change. You're had a sex change. You're a transvestite. Yeah, there's there's and, there's a lot. And why should mm. you reveal all those details? You know, but yeah. it just goes to show there's very few questions where there are only exactly the sort of answers that I call it the answers in the official minds may not match up the advance of, uh, the answers in the main real world. And I find that four step framework is a very powerful way of looking at questions in general. Um, it comes out of the world of survey methodology, um, which is, you know, shows how the two fields can be uh, usefully inform each other, really. We, we did a lot of digging into that at, at the UXLX. Um, for the one coming up in London, um, it's a workshop that's specifically aimed at experienced practitioners. Okay. So I'm really taking the opportunity to kind of max it out with the challenge and <laughs> hit people with some fairly challenging or difficult mm. concepts and, and seeing how they fly. Ooh, um, did, not, have you, not have you got an example of one? You've got, to, well, you've got to give an I example mean, now of a, of a difficult concept. That sounds great. Uh, an example of difficult concept. Well, the, the really interesting concept is the concept of total survey error. So the survey methodologists um, do not think just about sampling error or statistical significance. So um, one of the things people say is, well, how many people do I have to survey in order to achieve statistical significance? Um, which is sort of 
worth asking, but no matter how many people you ask a question of, if it's a stupid question, you won't achieve real significance. You can achieve practical significance, but with uninteresting answers. So um, total survey error is about looking at your overall costs, um, both actual costs in terms of how many people you ask and how much data you're going to have to process, and cognitive costs, as in how much burden are you putting on the population that you're surveying? Um, is that worthwhile? Should you be asking fewer questions of fewer people? Exactly. The answer is nearly always mm. yes. You're trying to balance the pain of doing the stuff with the value of doing it. Right. And, mm. and um, looking at things like coverage error. So mm. um, you could get 50,000 responses. Is that good or bad? Is 50,000 a good representation mm. of the population you're trying to survey or not? Mm. So, for example, 50,000 responses generated by people who are on Twitter would not be a good representation of, for example, the UK population because only a small minority of us are on Twitter. I um, I got a new car this year. Well, I, I got rung up um, a couple of times um, by the car company to ask how the whole experience was. I mean, I'm, I'm used to them doing that because I've had a car from um, from them before. Um, but this time I got a I got a new car survey, and I didn't fill it in. The reason I didn't fill it in is because, if memory serves me right, it was about thirty pages. Ooh. And <laughs> and I flick through it, and I'm I'm just looking and thinking, my God, I mean, it's all in Swedish as well. I think. God, how am I going? How long is it going to take me? What am I going to do? And there's like pictures of cars. And he's asking me to tell what I think about this bit, that bit, how it is to drive, how it is to buy. You know what I thought about it before. There was just endless number of questions. It's there was there was nothing not in this survey, and I said I didn't I didn't fill it in. And I, I normally do quite like filling in surveys. <laughs> there's there's a bit of me that enjoys it, um, but now I'm reflecting on it and thinking with what you've just said, Caroline that. The people who do bother to fill that survey in, they can't possibly be representative, because who <laughs> in their right mind is going to fill in that survey with no reward or anything? I mean, it's mm. just for pure joy. I'll have to see. The, if I, the, I'll have to see if I still got it, and I might even send you it, Caroline, because it's um, even though it's well, in Swedish, I think you like it. Well, that that's an interesting example because that's another type of error that comes into total survey error. That's uh, an error called non-response error. Mm. So another sort of error you have to think about is even if you've sent your survey to a good random sample that does directly represent the population of interest, if you've got a situation where the people who don't respond differ from the people who mm. do respond in some way that matters to your survey, then you've got non-response error. Yeah. Okay, and and you can see how your sampling is not going to help that. Taking a better sample will not solve non-response error. Mm. Um, and you're addressing the problem there where you're saying, well, actually, I think only people who are particularly boring will answer <laughs> this survey. And do they really want to infer the general population characteristics just on people who are completely obsessed and boring. Mm, yeah. Maybe yeah. they do. Maybe that's what that's fine. Exactly. Or every, every <laughs> um, single person with two kids and everyone full-time jobs mm. who doesn't have anywhere near enough time to fill in the 30-page survey are not going to respond. So then you right. you end up cutting out an entire segment. But you exactly. did touch upon something else there also James you said something and there wasn't even a reward. And that's mm. something I I wanted to, to talk about a bit is 
what if, what if there was a reward? And given that there were also 30 pages and you had 500 questions with the Likert scale, with your strongly disagree to strongly agree. And in the end, having filled out a lot of those types of surveys, I realized that as I get further and further into it, I'm, I'm getting more and more tired and I'm not really concentrating on the answers. And I realized, well, I'm just checking. I'm sort of agreeing with the, with the questions because I, I sort of know, half expect what the questions are going to be. And so I'm, I'm guessing that the reward, if I, I want the reward enough, I'm going to complete the survey, but I may not really be truthful in my answers or give them en enough thought for them to be represent representative of what I really feel. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a phenomenon of people, mm. people's level of interest can mm. decline. Mm. Um, and really, it's also a questionnaire of, of putting too much burden on the respondents. So you can persuade people to answer for longer by giving them a better reward. But you can't stop them getting bored um, yeah. if you bore them, you know. <laughs> and that's a perfect. Lot of, I love that. <laughs> a lot of market, I mean, a lot of surveys and market research have not moved on conceptually, I think, mm. from, you know, if you go back to the 1950s or before, collecting answers to a survey meant sending out someone with a survey as an interviewer and getting them to sit down with someone and they would have a conversation and write down all the answers. Well, that's a very expensive collection procedure. So once you've decided to do that, you really want to wring every last possible shred of opinion out of the person mm. you're interviewing. And in those days, I'm assuming surveys were a possibly a nice novel interruption into the humdrum level of everyday life, possibly. Or maybe mm. people were just very busy, but because surveys were few and far between, there was a level of novelty. You felt well, you felt special, maybe. I mean, I, I remember. Yeah, you felt special. Yeah, when those yeah. days when someone rung up and said, "Do you, do you mind if we come round and talk to you about, um, I don't know, um, radio listenership behaviour or something?" Um, when they come round and talk to you about BBC radio and things, it was it was quite interesting. It felt mm. like you were important, you were valued, because um, right. it was unusual. Right. And you were, and mm. you still ought to feel important and valued and unusual. Exactly. But when it's done in a very impersonal way and when it's one of the many different things that compete for your attention in a very busy information stream that's being housed at us and when it's possible to reach far more people far more easily then I think we should get over asking people quite so many questions. Um, these days I think we can do what I call patchworking which is my own name for it which is instead of asking 500 people 50 pages of questions, you could ask 100 people five questions and another 100 people a different five questions and another 100 people a different mm. five questions, possibly with one or two questions that are common and build up a sort of patchwork quilt picture of your data, mm. um, which sounds much more laborious, but and it sounds as if it wouldn't be representative, but it's much more likely to be representative than asking two or three people who've got loads of time on their hands and maybe completely unrepresentative of population, everything. Mm. Yeah. It would be better to get little bits of very mm. representative data and make a sort of mosaic or patchwork picture that yeah. is a good picture 
than have very large amounts of very unrepresentative data. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yes, I mean, it does. And I think it's an absolute I, I, excellent I've never idea. heard of it before. Nice yeah. an excellent um, idea. Yeah. I was just thinking as well that, you know, so, so often now we see, um, you know, the, the, the layer comes up on the website in the middle of you doing something else, which is your actual task on the website, and asks you, do you have a few minutes of your time to answer some questions about our website? And straight away there, right, you're, you're distracted, you're irritated, mm. and you've got to click yes or no. But that in itself, using the patchwork method that you described now, Caroline, that itself could be a question. Mm. So if you're going to get them to do one click, you might as well ask them the question straight off and get them to click there mm. on that one. And also, if you can try and build some confidence in the population. Now, what we're doing at the moment is um, I think organizations are systematically training their customers to ignore them. Um, so, mm. uh, for mm. example, um, hey, let's name and shame British Telecom great big um, major telecom supplier in the UK. Yeah. I did a small study, a qualitative study of survey response um, a couple of summers ago. And a friend of mine was very kind and kept records of every survey she filled in for a month. And she was having a couple of problems with her telephone at the time. Ooh. And the first time she contacted customer support at lost. BT, they sent her a how was this for you survey and she mm, filled someone. it in. The problem wasn't resolved, and the second there, time she contacted them, they sent her the same survey. And she filled it in, but she wasn't really happy about it. Hmm. And by the third time she contacted them and they sent her the same survey, she decided never to answer their surveys ever again. Of course. So in the course <laughs> of a month, they trained her to be a completely dedicated non-respondent. Yeah. Hmm. And I think many organizations are doing that to their customers by yeah. asking them too often. No, yeah, we, 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 only, well. we only scratched the surface, really, because we haven't talked about, you know, how sensitive a topic is that we're asking about, how do we formulate the questions and uh, stuff like that. How, exactly. we, how do we make people understand what the question is and what, what type question. of response we're really expecting? I mean, even legibility, I know that you've talked about that in your workshop as well, Caroline, the, the typeface, the, the font, the, the, how... Um, how how legible it is is it black and white or it's are you using colors that distract the user there are so many aspects of online forms that it's just mind-blowing yeah, i was thinking about the old um, the question bias as well are you 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 knowingly or unknowingly write biased questions mm. I, i've got an example about that as well um. so there you go you see i'm i'm I, i detect a little bit of forms passion coming through there i can oh, yeah. feel the infection <laughs> spreading out you know be careful because if it hits you bad you might be stuck with it for mm. the next 20 years do you know i think we probably will invite you back on again at some point in the future caroline because um i i, I can tell we could fill up definitely more than one show oh yeah with, um, with content we're talking with you ah mm. uh, that would be terrific thank you so much for being with us thanks You're welcome mm. thank you This podcast has been a repeat show from our archives. Let us know which of your favorite episodes of the years you think should be repeated for more people to listen to. And if you'd like to contribute to funding UX Podcast, then visit uxpodcast.com slash support. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. I've done a survey asking people what make of shampoo they use in the shower. Okay. Yeah, uh, 99% of them answered, what the hell are you doing in here? Get out!
And now I bet you're wondering about the 1%, aren't you? <laughs> oh. 